Welcome to Legville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Legville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Legville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. The second wave of support comes from our sponsors, places and products we sincerely, truly love. The first is Elsa's. In the 90s, a Scandinavian woman took a cab from Toronto to Montreal and opened a bar in the Plateau Montréal. The rest is history. Perhaps the best place in Montreal, if not the world, to have a lively conversation, a good drink, and some great food, Elsa's wants you to enjoy each other. Also sponsoring the podcast is Good Mix. Good Mix includes a wide range of prebiotic fiber, which promotes microbial diversity in the gut flora. You can get 15% off your next purchase of Good Mix at Amazon and at goodmixfoods.com by using the code LIKEFILL when you check out online. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likevillepodcast.com. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today I'm going to be talking with Layla Marshy, the author of The Philistine, fantastic novel. Um, welcome, Layla. Hi, John. Thank Hi. you. So it's, it's Marshy, I said that yes. correctly? Okay, yeah. awesome. Um, so... I mean, what? Tell, tell maybe tell us uh, the listeners something about yourself and about the novel, uh, <laughs> who you are, why you wrote this. Um, well, I wrote it because, uh, well, I'm a writer, um, and in my late twenties, for three years, I got a scholarship. Well, I got a scholarship just for the first year, but I got a scholarship when I was twenty six to go to uh, the University of Cairo, and it was to do my masters. And uh, I had just heard about it by chance. There were three places and four of us applied and I didn't get in. So that was um, devastating. And then in December, no, in November, the embassy of Egypt called me up and said, the third person dropped out. Can you be in Cairo uh, in a week? (laughs) So I said, can you give me two weeks? And that's what I did. So um, I got to Egypt with, um, I have family in the Middle East, but none in Cairo, none in Egypt. And I I got there, it was quite a a cold open. (laughs) I didn't know anything about the country, I'd done no research. This is like the very late 80s, so, you know, and I I just didn't, I didn't prepare myself. So um, I didn't end up going to university there either because I discovered, contrary to what they told me, that I could not do my papers in English and I couldn't uh, do my thesis in English. So I just didn't go. Um, And I studied Arabic instead. So I had really rudimentary Arabic, so I studied Arabic in a language school. And I stayed there for three years. Um, I ended up working for the PRCS, the Palestine Red Crescent Society. Um, I also did a lot of babysitting in the first (laughs) year or so uh, uh, for expats. So that's a whole interesting scene. So my experience and and the whole time I was there, you know, stayed with me. I wrote a few stories. I'd published short stories and poetry through the years. And then this novel, this longer form story, um, was with me for a long time in my mind. I, the original intent was to write, was the character of Manal. She's an artist in a gallery. She's a woman. 
Um, she's a very ambitious artist and a very talented artist. And yet there are just so many glass ceilings uh, in a place like Egypt. And so what I was compelled to write was was this. And, and the fact that we as a liberal society, Western, will look down on certain cultures for not being as artistically or socially... Um, advanced, not as sophisticated, but really people just don't have so many opportunities for so many reasons. So I wanted to explore that. Yeah, well, it, it really, it really works in the novel because you, you know, you start off and you've got this, this main character who is a very kind of quintessentially kind of Western um, liberal democracy character that's, you know, they're kind of Gen x sort of like angsty, trying to figure out what to do with their life and, and this kind of overwhelmed with all this freedom and choice. And because of that, you, I think we have a tendency to, to really kind of judge people for their choices and imagine that you have this big buffet of options available. And what's really interesting in the novel is she meets these people um, and, and hangs out with them and just gradually realizes that their, um, their choices are so much more circumscribed than hers. Yeah, and they're and, so much smarter than her too and so much more interesting. Like I hope that came across to yeah, like, that the character that comes, of Nadia. She's like a blank slate in a way, which is a place of comfort, you know, like people who don't want to get involved in politics or who don't want to leave the tour bus and they are blank slates. Like we have the choice to maintain a kind of comfortable um, blankness and, and, and that's where she comes from. Yeah. Well, her character, I thought, was... I, I kept thinking, especially towards the end of the novel, I kept thinking that if you had sort of a what-if question... Uh, I was thinking about this in the shower yesterday. <laughs> I was like, a what-if question. I was like, if Layla had written this novel, you know, maybe 20 years ago, I suspect it would have been a really different novel. I think <laughs> you... My guess is you would have been much more, like, judgy and harsh of the characters. But I guess... You know, what, I think you're, that's you, true. you're you're mm. you're very compassionate towards all of the characters, mm. including her, mm-hmm. and so they they have all these contradictions. And I mean, the, one of the funniest contradictions I find with Nadia is the fact that she's she's so kind of hard on her dad for being the way he is, yeah. and she's so much like him, like hmm. you know, just kind of shies away from confrontation. Is not very clear with people. You right. know, it's yeah. kind of kind of a bit of a douche and like kind of stiffs people <laughs> and ghosts them and like exactly like her dad. kind of gets what she needs in a way and then moves on. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it is harsh in the big picture how she sort of swoops into Manal's life as a, as a kind of beacon for Manal of possibilities and um, not maliciously, but then she just goes, I've, okay, this is enough for me. It's time for me to move on. But they both do that. I think they both see that the, they see the limits of their relationship and their association and their love for each other. It just can't be played out. And I think that's true of life. Some things just can't be played out. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but Manal has a kind of a real sort of ruthlessness and a single-mindedness, which uh, is on the one hand, you know, strangely attractive because it's just, you know, I'm really going to go after this dream and I, you know, I'm going after it. But there's a ruthlessness and you feel like she's a, at times, I don't know, in the novel, I felt like she was a bit of a, like a user that hmm. just was kind of 
you know, looking at every situation, thinking like, what can I get out of you? And then, you know, one of the things that's really interesting about the way you develop her character is that you gradually realize that she she actually has all this extra depth and she is very sentimental and she does have these attachments. It's just she doesn't have the luxury of indulging all of them. No, I mean, you really can't, you know. I mean, we have so much here, right? Everything from social programs to the Canada Council to publishers that are willing to take chances, to art galleries that are collective run. I mean, we have just whatever discipline, whatever field, you know, tech, there's just so many opportunities and avenues. And I think, so you don't need to be ruthless, right? You can walk around and think you're a nice person and give a little bit to charity and let the person on the bus before, like you can do a lot of things that'll just reinforce that you're a very nice person. <laughs> but but the, the, the society you're living in is quite uh, ruthless. So I think in some places you have to be ruthless along with your society because um, there, there, there was... Um, a whole section that I ended up taking out, but it was an explanation that Manal gave Nadia that in a place like Egypt, you're either a, a vulture or a corpse. Like oh, no, you... that's in there. Oh. <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. Really? Because I yeah, took it out yeah. once. It's Did one I of the most chilling, chilling parts. <laughs> I, I was... That's so funny. I, I thought it was... I was like, like oh. I actually, like, I, there was... There was a couple of passages that I was that I wanted to share on social media, but I decided not to. I need to read my I thought, book again. Yeah, because I thought that they would um, that they might give people the wrong mm. impression. Because you really need to understand the context of what when it's being said. One of them was Daniel's uh, description of Egypt. He's oh, yeah. like, yeah, his harsh, it comes out. harsh, like yeah. you know. And then her description near the end, where she says, "You have to understand, uh, mm. you know, in Egypt, basically, you're either." Um, you're either a vulture or you're a corpse. You're mm. either eating the dead bodies of yeah. of everybody else or you're a dead body. Yeah. And uh, I want to get out of here so because I, I want to be alive. You have the freedom to be alive, mm-hmm. to not be like a vulture or a yeah. corpse. It's, and it's like, it's so brutal. Mm. I, it's absolutely brutal. Mm. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I've I've never really experienced that mm-hmm. personally because I've you know I've grown up here and yeah. I've always had like a lot of a lot of options. Another sort of thing that was in the background when I was reading your novel was uh, there's that really um chilling thesis that Eric Frum had in his his bestseller in the I think it was the 1950s or 1950s it was uh, escape what, what escape was book? escape from freedom oh that was the book he wrote at the end of his life what was it love something it, something yeah love i can't um, remember i i have never read that one me neither but uh, but his famous one that hmm. was a bestseller and translated was called escape from freedom and it's a it's a very creepy book cuz he essentially says why is it that in the 20th century west when more people were freer than ever before in human history, like we had pretty much abolished slavery, uh, women were enfranchised, more people, uh, working class people were making better money, like more people were more free than ever before in human history. And it's at this point that you have the rise of Stalinism and Nazism and fascism. He wrote and, that about the 1940s? Uh, and, you know, he was talking about like the f- first half of the 20th century. And he said, why is it? When people have an unprecedented amount of freedom, 
why are they lining up mm-hmm. to give away their freedom to dictators and to, to and to and why are so many of them joining cults and you know communes and all these like crazy that hasn't things changed and uh, and his argument is he said you know the big mistake that the enlightenment made was they assumed that everybody wants to be free and he said there's a small minority of people that want to be free most people find freedom absolutely terrifying and exhausting and they just are like it's like being in Ben and Jerry's trying to choose a flavor like Jesus mm-hmm, Christ or something. Mm-hmm. Like they just find it incredibly overwhelming. Well, and I so don't even they, know what like, freedom. Take away yeah, my but, freedom. You but know, what like, is freedom? I'm like I, I find it's freedom. You know, our freedom. They're going to take away our freedom. They don't like our democracy. Like these these terms are th- they're they're uh, weaponized. Like what is it? It, it it's not free. Going to the drugstore and having thirty different types of toothpaste to choose from is not freedom. So choice is not freedom. So I, I don't I don't know what freedom is actually. Uh, I mean one you know, one way I would to say to self actualize, but it's always contextual. Or to or to or to want um, you know, let's say uh, you know, I have I have students for instance that are um, that have that are here, their parents are here on diplomatic visas or they're here on work visas and stuff like that. And they realize while they're, you know, at John Abbott College that they are like that they're gay or that they are, you know, whatever. They realize something and mm. and for them, if they're gonna go back to Saudi Arabia or go back to, you know, to Pakistan, this is absolutely yeah. or Egypt, by the yeah. way. This is yeah. absolutely not gonna be okay. Yeah. So yeah, I mean that's true. just one example where yeah. they feel like being being like who they want to be is going to be uh, very circumscribed if they go back to Yeah, okay. Yeah. So I guess like some places would would maybe open up they would open up much more space for uh individuals to figure out how they want to live. It's such for a themselves. fine balance because we've here we've opened up a lot of space for that, right? I mean gender orientation women religious freedom living off the grid if you want like any way you look at it there's a space for you to live your individualized actualized life yet we also have created like a huge uh alienating culture where we are only who we are right i am me and i define myself by me or whatever group I can sort of be part of. And I find that very alienating, too. When I went to Egypt, I was in my mid-20s, and I realized only when I was there that I had never known any of my friend's parents. So I was in Montreal. I lived in the Plateau in the 80s. Granted, I was part of the queer lesbian community, and a lot of lesbians in Montreal, especially in that era, came from smaller towns. They had left their homes, but a lot of people were here. But there was no question that you would ever meet people's families. Like we just sort of, we presented ourselves only. And that's partly contextual, but I've talked to other people who didn't move in a homogeneously queer community like I did. And that's how it is and was. And I think we're changing that a little bit. I think kids, the kids, kids of your kids' age and my kids' age, I think we have better relationships with our children. And I, I know all my kids' friends. But so I think we're moving more towards being a more multi-generational family, um, more of a community, 
but I think uh, I think we need to move more in that direction because it's it's one thing to actualize yourself, but you you need to live in a village. Yeah. The more we villageize our lives, the healthier it is. Yeah. No, I I totally agree. There's wow. There's like at least two things from what you said that I want to <laughs> go into. But um, the first one, well, there's this is something that uh, Emile Durkheim, the great um, Fr- French sociologist, figured out in the you know early 20th century. So he his his famous book Suicide, hmm. which is uh, he he basically looked at suicide rates all over Europe. And he traveled and he tried to look for patterns. And what he found was that, first of all, some things jumped out. And he found that the highest suicide rates in all of Europe were in the most intensely Protestant um, parts of, and even I within totally countries, believe it. even and within countries, Protestants had the highest uh, rates of suicide. Mm-hmm. Then Catholics had much lower rates and then Jews had the lowest Protestants rates. have horrible families. Right? And he and so but he explained <laughs> this he explained this uh, based on the interconnectedness in families and that when there's a huge focus on the individual it's it's very alienating, yeah. right? And so he yeah. he came up uh, he came up with this this idea of like anomie which is linked to that as well anomie anomie which is mm-hmm. like uh, this idea that when People have so much freedom, but they don't know what to do with it. Mm. And so they just end up feeling totally disconnected. Yeah. And he is basically Durkheim's ideas were really popular for a while, but then in the 60s, they they rejected right. him because they said it was super conservative. Mm. But it's made a big comeback mm-hmm. now, like with uh, Johan Hari and Jonathan Haidt and others have, mm. have sort of said, actually, Durkheim was right about a lot, mm-hmm. you know, but... Uh, but there's that. But but just to circle back, it's it's funny that you say that, um, you know, coming out of this this kind of queer, lesbian. One of the things I found one of the things I found really charming about this novel is that the main love story is between two women, but the word lesbian appears only once in the entire novel. Does it? You checked? Yes, <laughs> uh, and it, it it comes very late. Okay, and it's mentioned as an offhand. Hmm. Which I I just thought that was absolutely genius because hmm. you have this this sort of this novel that's very focused on somebody struggling to find identity, uh, you know, Palestinian and am I Canadian and am I Montrealer and am I Egyptian and you know what am I what am I? Um, but then obviously, like one of the main things that is actually happening mm-hmm. is coming to terms with her sexuality, but she never turns it into. Because there's it's no about, group. It's about. It's because the. I mean, the gay and lesbian community in the Middle East, at least then. I mean, I was back again this summer, but obviously I wasn't cruising and checking things out. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's very underground, and and you know, most people do end up getting married, and and having those heteronormative lives. But they will still meet and they will still have salon style parties and people know each other. But the term lesbian, it's it's just, it wasn't used then. It was just, um, somebody told me once that they would have uh, petting parties. That's what she called it. And it doesn't necessarily mean that everybody was fondling each other, but it was just, it was just, you know, the women, the men, they would just get together. and uh, And there was a tacit, awareness of it too and acknowledgement and you know the more enlightened families would just sort of not really look it was a kind of don't ask don't tell 
situation. And um, because to declare yourself, I, I, I think it would be really painful. It, it would just um, underscore the fact that you can't live it. So you love women or you love a woman, and then you turn around and get married. It's sort of like, in a way, it all has to work together. You have no choice. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, I think it's different now for younger women. I think the internet has changed things. Um, yeah, I think people are more connected. I think Facebook has changed things. Um, there's a there's a way in which when I was there, young people were just they, it was a really different world. Whereas now, I think it's very connected, and I think young people like I know there's some lesbian groups on Facebook uh, out of Lebanon. Um, I know there's one out of uh, Palestine. Like there's there's stuff. So people are much more connected, and they're calling things. And I oh, people are much more sophisticated. Much yeah. more. I wonder though. I mean, obviously, I would. I think on balance, there's no contest. This is way way better than mm-hmm. what it is replacing. However, I do think there's there's maybe something that was lost. Like I remember um, my first apartment when I moved out. I lived on Dilliglis and Verdun, mm. and uh, my upstairs neighbors were these two sweet little old ladies, and they were just so much, they were great, and I very quickly befriended them, and I started, uh, we would hang out, and like we would like drink beer and play cards and stuff like that, and I gradually figured out these two were, were girlfriends, okay. and they had both been um, married to guys, but they were like had had their thing on the side f- since their 20s mm-hmm. and they lived like you know basically like across the street from each other as like housewives raising like big families and gradually they uh, they outlived the dudes the dudes died okay. like and then in they their, got together like, and then they lived mm-hmm. together and they're just mm-hmm. uh, and i i would have like long conversations with them um because well it was just fascinating uh, and Becky, who's probably hearing this, uh, she will remember in Edmonton. You'll remember them. Uh, but uh, she was a next-door neighbor. Her and her girlfriend moved in next next door. Anyway, we'd have all these like really fascinating conversations. But what they both said is they said, you know, it's really nice that um, that it's okay, you know, that it's there's way more acceptance and everything. But um, there it, it is a little bit annoying because back in the day it was naughty and it was kind of so it exciting. Was, it was so exciting and yeah. naughty, and it there was, was a really, real underground. It scene. was really about like eroticism and desire. Mm. Mm-hmm. And when you got together, you you talked about ideas, you talked about books, you talked about art. It's like now it's all politics. Yeah, and it's like Identity coming sort out of politics. Yeah, and... it's just like it's talking about. Uh, it's so so political, mm-hmm. and like it's almost like, you know, it's almost like more political than than about like sexuality and about desire. And so you almost like now mm. uh, what one of the one of these women was saying. She goes, you know, I meet some young lesbians now, and uh, I I don't know. I mean, I don't get the I don't get the impression that they actually are into women. I think they just are really angry about patriarchy and they're mad at men, and you know. Well, I think that was fine. definitely there in the seventies and eighties. I, th- I think that's the thing about queer women. I think there's a lot more movement, and some of it is political. And I think it's easier for women to be with women than say men to be with men who aren't necessarily, you know, feel strongly gay. But yeah, the scene was very exciting here too. I mean, we had. Bar. I mean, Montreal had a really exciting queer scene in the 80s and 90s. It was underground, less and less so. But, you know, I was at the first Pride March, 
you know? And, really? Yeah. When was that? Oh, early 90s. I was at, and, and in the late 80s, we had, there was at one point a Take Back the Night March women. Um, I was at the sex garage when the police came, you know, <laughs> in the eight. Like, it was really, it was very exciting, and you felt illicit, and you felt like you had something that other people didn't have, and... And then, you know, I, I was at um, a panel discussion with older and younger lesbians and some in, it was about the scene. It was um, uh, an art installation piece at uh, Never Apart. Do you know that place? It's up on St. Urban, not far from here. Mm-mm. It's a gallery installation um, environment and they had a retrospective art piece by Jul- Julianne Pittock um, called Madame Arthur something. And it was about the bar scene in the 80s. And there was... A couple of older women, older than me, who were saying, you know, women don't want to call call themselves lesbians anymore. We've lost the lesbian scene. But, you know, we got what we wanted. We wanted, we did want more mainstream. We, I mean, you lose something, but yeah. we are where we want to be. Like, nobody's in prison. Like, we are in a good place. <laughs> yeah. Do you watch that show, The Good Place? So, yes. is the good place? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> is the yeah. good place really the good place? Yeah. Maybe not. So... Yeah, we're you know, you, yeah, there's you a, lose some of that excitement, but you do, and there's there's other things. It also came with a price. Like people older than me were alcoholics. Like you know, I I think it that turned me off drinking when I was young. I've never been a big drinker because I would sit in these bars in these cafes, and the forty and fifty year old women would sit there and chain smoke and drink till they like they were <laughs> alcoholics. There was yeah. it was hard. I think it was really hard. Yeah, but but there, there still was a kind of I don't know because I used to hang out with, and play pool with a lot of those like mm-hmm. especially those old like bulldogs with the with the yeah with they, the had, pack they of had smokes stuff in going here. on they yeah. had a kind of there was something deeply awesome mm-hmm. about them too yeah. they had a kind of James Dean badass For thing sure. going on on the motorcycle they're and, still like, around they're there's, like there's young women like that now. yes there are there they're are there. but I, I find. There's uh, maybe it's more fashion than actual. Maybe they never actually had to beat somebody up. But yeah, with those yeah, women, these were like they were tough. Y- you could imagine them having to actually hit somebody over the head with yeah. a pool cue. And they had had <laughs> they had had they had been kind of like battle hardened. Yeah, right. Yeah, they were battle hardened. You, yeah, yeah, you're absolutely Whereas right. Whereas now it's much more um, attitude. Yeah, 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 it's attitude, and also because there's so much. Um, kind of consciousness raising and, and sensitivity and stuff like that. That's all good. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the problem is, is it's like living in a hypoallergenic environment. As soon as you get outside of that protective bubble, um, what's going to happen? Are you going to like get horribly sick, have a really bad allergy mm. attack? Or are you mm. going to, how are you going to deal with? Um, but you can with, say that about anybody in our culture, right? I mean, yes. we're all sort yeah. of, you know, in these really safe places. Yeah, and right. it can be. It, it's not always. It's not always helpful. But so, mm-hmm. what about the whole? The whole kind of. Uh, I mean, I love the the title of Philistine. Uh, but <laughs> the there's maybe you can say what was your angle? I mean, I think I know what your angle was in, in, in calling it the Philistine. Yeah. Um, again, I think it's in the book, but I'm not sure. But I, when I was growing up, I read a lot, and I really read the canon, right? The 19th century, 18th century authors. 
And the term that, you know, Philistine was yeah. used like it was a very common term, you know, so-and-so is a Philistine or let's not deal with these Philistines over here. And I just always thought they were talking about Palestinians, really. And <laughs> sometimes it made sense and sometimes it didn't. And, I, you know, you just keep reading. So I, for the longest time, until I discovered that Palestinian and the literary usage of the word Philistine had nothing to do with each other because Palestinian in Arabic is Philistine. So, so when I call the book The Philistine, it's to talk about Nadia's Palestinianism, but it's also to talk about the way Nadia might see, you know, this culture or Manal or the way Manal might be seen as a Philistine, as somebody less educated, less sophisticated, less worthy. Um, I think as countries and as in individuals, we decide who's worthy and who's less worthy. So the fact that Manal now is just going to give up her art and get married, no one's going to care because she's less worthy. It's not a tragedy in anybody's eyes. To me, it's a massive tragedy. Um, so yeah, but she's just a Philistine. So it's this. It's this usage. Yeah, and it's, it's also. I mean, that that's a really interesting angle too. The way that. Manal's art is is actually quite quite powerful and dynamic, and she actually is is sort of observing in a very passionate way what is happening around her, and is painting tanks and soldiers mm -hmm. and things like this. And yet, the art that is selling really really well is art that represents something that is has nothing to do with Egypt that's like snow in Russia or yeah. abstract. This was kind of the case then when I went back um actually my friend who did the cover uh he 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 lives there he's an artist in Cairo and he's he's he was my friend back then too and his art has become amazing and now he's a major artist but the art scene in Egypt because I did uh hang around the um actually the uh Mashrabeya uh, gallery quite a bit. Um, the art wasn't interesting and uh, it just always seemed sort of half thought through, half done and very much dependent on whatever school of art or schooling the artist had gotten. And this is really different now. The art is out of this world in Egypt. Um, I went to some shows and it's very political and it's very connected with what's going on. So things have changed. But yeah, the art scene back then was, was, I remember, you know, it was just, it was not interesting art. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's a common theme all over the place. Like I, I John Rawson Saul talks about this a lot, how in, he calls it the colonial mindset, that when you're living in a place that is in thrall of what he calls the colonial mindset, the, the idea is that reality that matters is in the mother country or in the is mm. in New York or London or Paris. Sure. And whatever happens here uh, somehow doesn't matter, right? And so he he says that a lot Canada of, was like that till, yeah, and, until and, very and, recently. And he he says, you know, if you go into the typical professor at like UDM or something like that uh, and go into look at the books on their shelf, it's half of their books are are from France. Yeah. Are they're all like the philosophies they teach in their classes? The literature is from France, as mm -hmm. if uh, Quebec has not been producing fantastic mm -hmm. French mm -hmm. literature for a very long time. Yeah. It's as if we're. It, and he says that's the colonial, and yeah. then you go into a McGill prof's like office, and everything on the wall is from 
um, the US from, or, from or US or UK. Britain, yeah. right? Yeah. And the way you get legitimacy is by going to the mother country, which used to be, you know, maybe Edinburgh, Oxford, Cambridge, yeah. and then it switched to the United States. And so you yeah. get your legitimacy by going and getting a degree at Harvard, Yale, Princeton. Then yeah. you come back to the colonies uh, and you're respected, yeah. right? And it's, uh, or, you know, in the French system, somewhat different. But it is this idea that, and that comes through in the novel that in Egypt, the way that people get legitimacy is coming from Paris or coming yeah. from, you know, Moscow yeah. or something like they, that. They go and they study there and then they come back and, yeah, and then they're painting snow squalls. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was so amazing, the guy, where it's just like all white paint mm-hmm. and then she mm-hmm. tries to put it up on a white, like mm-hmm. painting the walls to try and point out how ridiculous it is yeah. and then it still it's sells. Subtle, yeah. And yeah. She's like, <laughs> yeah. But it sells because of her, actually, which is... Well, yeah. It was unintended. It, but. Yeah, you don't realize that at the time. But, yeah, uh, yeah. It's, it's definitely her hotness is what actually yes. sells yeah. it. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, going and trying to find this father and mm. having the, the mother, where did, how did you come up with that, that dynamic? Well, it's not at all personal. My father died in the early 80s and my mother, I mean, it's not at all personal. Um, but... So, I mean, we talk a lot in Canada about, you know, the immigrant who comes here and does well, but that's not always the case. And so I I wanted, and I have known a few stories where people went back to their countries. They come here and they don't quite make it. So Nadia's father comes here, he gets a degree and he can't quite get a job. And it's partly his own dilettantism and, 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 it's because he doesn't really want to work in that field, really. He wants to be political and, and you know, go back to Palestine. So he gets this job. Uh, what was your question? <laughs> no, I just, because I, I didn't think it was personal. I was just, I was interested this dynamic because I've seen their relationship, her parents' relationship. I've seen it so many times oh, in yeah. real life. Okay. I mean, like this, <clears throat> where you have um, specifically... Like a a woman who's from Canada who marries a guy from you know from somewhere else, and it it just doesn't it doesn't mm. work, mm-hmm. and it doesn't work for exactly the reasons. That- well, she wants it to work for Canadian <coughs> reasons. I I think she doesn't expect, and I don't know how gendered this is. In my mind, it's not gendered. As a rule, I think it can happen both ways, but she doesn't expect to need to have to take in his entire world. He's here now. She met him here. She doesn't see his backstory. She's not political. It's boring to her. And so she can never comprehend what he struggles uh, with. And so he's very um, alone in this. And um, yeah, she loses her patience. She has no patience for him. And the fact that Nadia wants to go, I mean, the fact that she wants Nadia to stay at the best hotel and like all this kind of stuff to her, it's just, it's not really an interesting journey. And she's given up on him. He's gone. She doesn't care. She has better things to do. She, she's got her own career. Thank you very much. And yeah. Yeah. So. And it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, and it's also interesting how Nadia very much sort of romanticizes him, mm-hmm. right? Because I've seen that happen very, very often, and I've also seen often with teenagers where the parents split up. The uh, I apologize, I'm getting over a cold. That's why yes. my voice, my voice is like this. But um, where the teenager will go 
and find the father and then find out that the father is a complete, you know, flake mm. and, you know, come back you know, with their tail between their legs. But for a long time, we'll romanticize yes, of course. the father who's away, which, yeah. I mean, does Nadia have that? Is yes. That- I mean, he would come back. He made promises to her. He always came back <laughs> during some sort of holiday. There was always a lot going on. He'd give her gifts. And um, he's also her connection to something about herself that she just can't. And I think being with Daniel is a similar situation to being with her mother. Like Daniel, there's some scenes where he's trying to figure her out and he wants to show that he is there and he understands, but he can never quite. Um, I, th- I, I, I didn't really get into this, but I, I think being an immigrant is something that we, we don't fathom the, the horribleness of having to leave your country. I mean, I, 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 there's a lot of people who come here without that sense of, of having been torn and they just go forward. But I think some people, it really tears something off them. And, um, and I think we don't see it. And, and for second generation, I think we don't see the sort of the, the difficulty to kind of figure out who you are in that absence. And so Daniel and the mother are two different ways of people trying to fathom, but also really not getting it. I wonder, you know, and I, I, I kept thinking about this at different points in the novel. I wonder how much of that is like a basic human reality about identity and belonging, or how much of that is an artifact of basically the second half of the 20th century because for a lot of human history it's been it's been the case that people have moved and to brand new places and have been completely absorbed into new cultures i mean if you just look at the the early stories of the european mm-hmm. kind of settlers in north america and south america they would very often they would find these like let's say the the mohawk right if they had a war and they they won, right? And they took some captives. They might kill a bunch of them, and then some of them they might be like, "I, hey, you know, he looks like a pretty good guy. She looks pretty cool," and they would adopt them into their into their tribe, yeah. and they would learn the language, and they would become absolutely one hundred percent members of that tribe. And this was found all over uh, the Americas, and it was found throughout the world. So much so that when they would maybe run into somebody that they knew 10 years later, uh, they would. They did not want to go back at all. They had completely assimilated into that, yeah. if, that if, tribe. If, if it, yeah. I mean, I don't know the instances of that and how much that happened. I mean, I know there were some white men who took on uh, Native American personas and then profited oh, that's a, by that's that. Oh, that's a different thing. But that's, in terms of, yeah, I mean, I guess finding yourself somewhere and then being assimilated and then taking that on, it, yeah, it's part of the human condition. And it would happen during wars earlier. People would take prisoners and then they would, you know, become... Um, but then I, I think also it was always called into question, too. I mean, blood has always been really important. And I'm sure it was they always then spent their life trying to prove themselves um, and then defend that. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. know. It just, it seems to me like there's if you if you happen to be an immigrant during the especially the last couple decades of the 20th century when there was a really really big um, I don't know I don't know what to call it like a 
part of the culture was everybody was getting in touch with their roots mm. and trying to like, and so people who uh, who did not speak, you know, the language of their grandmother, you know, and were suddenly trying to learn Italian or Greek or Hebrew or, or Arabic or, or Gaelic. And they were re- resurrecting languages that had yeah. been actually dead. And everybody was obsessed with like their getting in touch with their roots. If, um, if you happen to be an immigrant during that time, then I wonder if maybe the immigrant experience was more traumatic then because you feel like you're supposed to be in touch with your roots and that somehow you're a real place. Like, you know, I remember uh, a friend of mine saying to me, and I was so puzzled because I had grown up with her in Verdun. And she was completely like a Montrealer. Uh, she had she got suddenly obsessed with her Irish roots and she went back to Ireland. Um, like I think she went once for, for like a, a month or something like that. And another time for a month. And then she decided that's where I really belong. Hmm. And that's, I feel like a connection to that place. And I feel like I'm at home mm-hmm. when I'm in Ireland. And I remember thinking that was so odd because like her, family had been here for three generations and she didn't speak. And the thing is, is I've since talked to people who are actually from places where people show up and say, I feel connected. And they're like, you are totally not from here. I've often wondered. Yeah. Like if somebody told me I was Italian and then I ended up in Naples, like, would it feel like, yeah. I mean, you have to kind of wonder how much of that is, you know, quote in your DNA. I hate that phrase. Yeah. Well, that, that's the but, most extreme, or, crazy or, version of it. Yeah. Or or is there something? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. But like I, I grew up in the 60s and 70s and immigrants, well, I grew up in a very multicultural um, place and there was, you know, kids in school, our teachers were all different color. I mean, it was very... And every parent had um, an accent. All my friends, their parents, you you go to the house and they all spoke with an accent. But nobody learned the language. You know, that was the era where you came to Canada to be Canadian and nobody learned the language of the second generation. Like I can, yeah. But I think now it's different. I think I think connections are kept. I think I think there's an acknowledgement of, you know, you can be Lebanese Canadian and still be, you know, and everybody wants to shop at um, Adonis and go to a Lebanese <laughs> restaurant and, yeah. you know, there's there's there's. I, I think things have changed. I think, I think like to go back to the very first thing you were talking about about. Uh, diversity. Did, were we talking about that on air? No, not yet. Before? But, oh, not, but we definitely need to go on. there. So yeah, shoot. I mean, I I think Canada manages diversity really, really well, and I think the vulnerabilities and the cracks that have opened up are very um, American um, tinged. And and um, but I think I think we have a lot of things in place to manage diversity well, and we have a lot of openness to feel Canadian in spite of slash because of, you know, so you can be first or second generation uh, Bengali and live in Brantford, Ontario to just pick a place. 
um, that I just happened to read about this morning and feel very, very, very Canadian, you know. And the fact that John, Don Cherry, well, he should have been fired 30 years ago, but the fact that he finally got fired and there was a consensus coast to coast to coast that this man needs to go. I think this is really great. You know, I, I, I think we, I think Canada is one of the few countries that is a concept more than it's anything else. And, you know, I say all this um, with the proviso that, you know, to, from a um, autochton, from an um, indigenous perspective, it's, it's all, you know, terrible. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, and then after that, where do you go? But, you know, obviously that's something we need to work on. But I think we are good at being diverse and multi, multifaceted in Canada. Well, this is, I guess, this is one of the most interesting questions of of 2019, and I think it's going to be a big question for at least the next decade, is exactly, like, what are the the limits of, of diversity, right? Because um, I was brought up, you probably were too, um, that diversity is just an unqualified good. Yeah. It's like the more diversity is our strength and all that stuff. Well, you know, as we were talking about before... Uh, we went on air. There's Robert Putnam and others, and, and Daniel Weinstock and others have said that actually a lot of evidence is coming out now that suggests that um, diversity may not be always an unqualified good in every way. So diversity is definitely good when it comes to um, economic life. Uh, having diversity just seems to almost always boost the economy. You get more entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. You get more creativity. It's good for culture. It's good for aesthetics, for art, uh, for intellectual life. It's, so diversity is really good for those kinds of things. Uh, but it looks like uh, the downsides of it is that it tends to uh, reduce social trust. It tends to reduce Well, they, they say that, but I don't believe it. <laughs> yeah, like... Well, I, mean, I, don't, you know, I, I, I didn't I, want to I, believe it either. And I, I, no, Daniel Weinstock definitely doesn't I want to believe it. But. I don't think it's true. Like, I mean, you have to decide why you are there, why you are there with all these people. And I think if you can have a common reason, there's, then, there's, then there's no reason to lose trust. I don't necessarily look at somebody who's a different color or ethnicity or religion from me and feel that we can't share anything. And and. I actually think young people have even more of that. They don't feel divided by color, ethnicity. Um, maybe I, I, th I think the one last real thing that does divide us is class. And I think that needs to be explored. And I think a lot of discussion about diversity is really about class. I think, I think a unprovided for working poor segment of the population needs things to be resolved and can sometimes feel resentment towards, you know, groups and stuff. But this is a class issue. It's not a diversity issue. I don't think we know even how to talk about class. We think we're a classless uh, society and we're more classless than, for example, the U.S. because we do have social programs that can save people from being completely uh, devastated by health issues or abs lack of education. But these are class issues, and, and yeah. But the, I guess one of the questions with that is that, okay, if if we value, you know, you and I value diversity as a good in Canada, then 
um, what are the, what are the basic limitations of that would be? What if there are people that um, within our community, within our country, that don't value diversity, right? That don't value and and maybe have um, have very opposite views. Like, how do we how do we deal with people that don't want that? Who actually make it very clear that if if I get any power within this institution or within this country or within this municipality, I'm going to take away mm-hmm. like your right to have this it's education <clears throat> and and it's i think it's a constant and i think what we're not good at is um is 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 putting enough time into that learning um i remember feeling that after 9 um 11 that there needed to be some effort to explaining why western liberal democracy is a good thing mm-hmm. you know and 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 I, I think I've since gotten a bit more sophisticated in my views about that, but maybe that wasn't a good example. But um. no, that's an excellent example. <laughs> no, I, I remember thinking, uh, you know, with with a number of my friends, thinking very similar things. I was living in Baltimore when that happened, and we actually we we had a, a friend who died September 11th, who was killed. Oh, wow! Um, and then, and also somebody that my wife went to high school with also <laughs> died. Um, in the World Trade Center and then okay. another one in the Pentagon. Mm. Um, but and we went to a funeral for somebody who was killed on, on September 11th. But after that, I remember a number of people saying exactly this, that we're, we haven't really given like a good case for why liberal... We've been so heavy in the kind of Chomsky critique of it mm-hmm. and everything that we haven't yeah. stopped to like say all yeah. the things that are great, great about it. And that's actually left us pretty and i think we still do that i mean i i don't even like the terms anymore western liberal democracy i think they're very loaded but we're we're still not very good at um celebrating what we are good at you know there's so much conflict there's so much arguing there's so much you know the cancel culture the call out culture you know and 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 yet we're we're still all moving forward but we're we're hacking each other at the kneecaps Constantly, I mean, nine eleven was really the culmination of you know. If you peel away the curtain, I mean, we had well, not so much Canada, but the U.S. had been bombing, you know, the Middle East quite severely since the early nineties. I mean, there's reasons why groups of people felt they wanted to fight back. Anyways, I don't want to talk about nine eleven anymore <laughs> because there's so much, there's yeah. so much there to unpack still. And, I'm I'm, um, I'm fascinated by the fact that you you <laughs> still think. Because this is this is that it of, wasn't this, an inside no, job. No, 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 no. That you still think we're moving forward. I find that I do very think beautiful. We're moving cause, forward because I I don't um, I don't have that that faith oh. anymore. I did. I mean, you know, after the, you know, with with the World War II and after that, sort of fascism and Nazism and that kind of like that certain kind of racism was was very much discredited. And then after the fall of the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. um, that, you know, was very much when, when all the truth came out about how horrible that was, you know, that sort of system was very much, like communism was very much discredited. And so for a while there, like in the late 1990s, it just looked like it was nothing yeah. but liberal democracy left. Yeah. And we were just going to, the end of you know, <laughs> move. Yeah, we were just going to keep getting better and better. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be more and more freedom. And we were going to be having like gay pride parades mm-hmm. in the middle of like Beijing. And like everything yeah. was going to be amazing. Yeah. And then suddenly the, the party 
um, started to yeah, which be was over. weird. And I think it took most of us off guard. It's like, yeah. what is this like? And and I th- I think it was Trump, right? It was it was the oh, it was happening before entry- Trump. It was, but it was easy to Putin not pay attention and the to rise it. Of, like, True, all these like basically, but it would all you know, felt containable. It still felt containable, and you know, um, saner heads prevailed all the time. And 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 then yeah, the cart yeah, things have really yeah, Trump was a kind of uh Pandora's box for sure. Yeah, but all but all pretty much all over the world, definitely all over the most of the Western world, there is a a kind of a rejection of the stuff that we grew up with, of diversity, celebrate diversity, it's an unqualified and there's a movement towards I don't think there's a rejection. I think there's backlash. And I think from a feminist point of view, it's like we've been there, done that. Like, you know, there's backlash. Like backlash... Backlash happens and and then things take a more palatable turn. So I don't think all... I, 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 I think there's really virulent and vocal pockets and I think social media has... Um, exacerbated that and I think the Russian meddling as we're finding out actually more and more has really turned on that switch but I do think the majority of people are are not gonna turn around and uh, goose step to the next yeah. potential tyrant like I don't think we're in a pre-German fascist era as people are warning I really don't yeah no it's it's not so much uh, German fascism I don't think that was something for another era. It's more that you just see these sort of right-wing, um, more kind of authoritarian and governments that are being elected all over the place. And the, one of the things they have in common is they tend to be uh, have a much more clear idea of this is what it means to be Polish, right? This is what it means to be French. This is what it, it means to be. Like, I, I remember sitting around with a bunch of, uh, Lebanese people here in, uh, in in Montreal once, and we we got this, this wonderful conversation. And there was they were all here for a wedding, and there were some that were here from Paris. There were some here from like New York, New New Jersey. Uh, there were some that live here, and uh, and a bunch of different places. And so we got into talking about the immigrant experience in different mm. places. And I, I said, so what's the difference? Yeah. And they said, well, you know, you can live in France. You can live there for 20 years. You can speak better French than any of their kids, and you will never be French. Hmm. You know, and, you know, and I saw that. You know, Every time we, we've been there, I've been there many, many times. And mm-hmm. it's, uh, people will ask you, like, is he French or is he French? Right. And yeah. you know what they mean. Right? Yeah. And so they said, you can live there forever, and you'll never actually be French. You'll well, never it's like be, Quebec. Right? And, <laughs> uh, well, they were actually saying... And this is what I find really fascinating. They were saying that um, if you there's some there from Toronto, right? And they said like in if you're in if you move to Toronto, uh, if you're there for like if you're there for like a little while, you know, a couple of years, you are completely Canadian, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And they said like Quebec, it takes a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. You know, it might take like you know five years, 
But uh, if you learn the language and you 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 can be like Quebecois in Amer- in the United States, uh, you know, six months after you show up in New York, you're American. Okay, like it's just it's so easy in to New join York. that. Yeah, if you show up in Wisconsin, I yes, it might the be same different. Thing. It might <laughs> be different. But they're saying like if you move into one of the big kind of coastal cities on the west coast or the the east coast, it's so easy to get into the American club. Right? Okay, uh, and they they were just talking about these differences. It seems to me like more and more the governments are moving in the direction of being more like uh, more exclusive clubs. Governments. We see, yeah, that uh, increasingly people are saying like uh, you can't just move to somewhere and kind of have your own culture and your own language and not have anything to do with mm-hmm. With the surrounding culture. Well, I mean, that's a reasonable expectation. Um, in Egypt, I said at the beginning, I used to uh, uh, babysit. So before I started working, working, that's how I made some money. And yeah, you have like thousands of expats living in little enclaves. And it's not the same as the immigrant experience here, unfortunately, because they are very wealthy and they work for wealthy organizations and they live in beautiful apartments. But they do not have anything to do with the surrounding culture. Like, they really don't. They party in their little enclaves. They never learn Arabic. I mean, it's rare. It's rare to find an expat in any of those countries that has anything to do with it. So, um, but to get back, I mean, yes. But I think things need to play out. Um, But I think on an individual level, people are much more enlightened. I mean, the whole... You know, we we are now changing genders. There's an assumption about you know male violence. Like lines, lines have been drawn. Like uh, bottom lines, right, have been raised. So there's behaviors that aren't tolerated anymore. So I think I think things are still moving forward. But I think on a higher level, these political forces need to play out, and they might take a whole other generation. But I think when the dust settles. We will be in a very much more forward-looking, forward-thinking place. Yeah, that's. I mean, if you look through history, that's what you see. You see that all the time. Actually, when I look in history, when I look back in history, I, I don't see it as being progressive. I, I see that there were times where things got better for a long time. And then things fell apart. Well, if you look at like extreme cases, would be if you look at um, what is the uh, Tasmania. Right when they when they first got there, the people of Tasmania they have all these theories about what happened. They think it might have been warfare. Some people think that it might have been uh, a fundamentalist, like that pre- kind of crazy religious movement. The, oh, long the before European Europeans arrival? showed up. Okay, but the people there had had degraded to such a, a f- such a level that they no longer had the wheel. They had forgotten how to use fire. They were. It was like seeing humans, and they can tell from the from the archaeological evidence that those people had all these other technologies okay. in the past, but they were just reduced I've to this very. I've never heard this story. Oh, yeah, it's yeah. incredible. They had kind of been reduced to this very very huh. low state, and we can see. I mean, if you look at Europe, right after the fall of the Roman Empire, yeah, uh, the sort of the average. The average age life expectancy went way, way down. They In Europe, lost so much but, technology that they didn't even know how to like uh, work on the Roman works because they they forgot how to make the cement that it was made of. 
Like they mm. really, things can go so mm-hmm. bad. The Roman Empire was in, yeah, okay. But all that knowledge and and skill went to the Middle East. So like it wasn't lost, lost. So advances no. in math, advances in <coughs> architecture, advances in literature, these were taking, they, they were still taking place. So you're going to have the fall of the U.S., but that doesn't mean we're going to lose <laughs> all of that knowledge and, and you know. Well, if you look at also the, the, the crazy discoveries they've been making recently, because sea levels have, have risen about 20 feet in the last, I think it's mm. the last 20,000 20, years. And so we usually, when we're looking at archaeological finds, we find them, you know, in places like Egypt, where out in the desert, where stuff... It's, it's dry and right. it's, it's high enough that, yeah. that it's there for a long time. And so we had this idea about how old civilizations were, but it, it looks like we were way off because if you actually, uh, even actually Cairo was one of the biggest finds. When they, they went out into the water deeper into the Mediterranean where it empties into the Mediterranean and they found um, that actually there were cities down there that were huge and they're way older than the pyramids. They're way hmm. older than... So probably... So the myth of well, Atlantis was, has a kind of... Probably, has, yeah. has a kind of... But, uh, yeah. but they're finding this all over the place. They found them in South America, Central hmm. America. So it looks like there probably were lots of big civilizations in the past that were at river deltas, like which is where cities very often hmm. go. Yeah. But they're now underwater, so we didn't have... Hmm. I. I suspect that there. You think it's possible to lose things, to out and out lose things. I think things. I don't think history is necessarily necessarily progressive. I don't think. um, I think we can lose things. I mean, you look at like what's happening in Russia right now. I mean, all sorts of rights and and kind of advances that happen are being taken Mm -hmm. away. I mean, I would not want to. Be gay in Russia right now. Mm-hmm. I would not. I mean, it's you read like Masha Gessen's books. Yeah. She talks about, like, yeah. It's getting very, very bad. Yeah. There's. I think things can, um, things can fall apart, and then and they're lost for good, or they're mm. lost for a very long time. Mm. And so I, I think thinking that that history is necessarily progressive well, is I dangerous. Mean, <laughs> I think things do fall apart, and people die, and you know. And 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 I don't know about history being progressive. Um, like if you look at the Palestinian issue right now, I mean it's as devastating as it's ever been, right? I mean Israel is bombing Gaza again. Uh, it's gonna. It's um, what did Netanyahu say recently about? Um, oh yeah, the settlements are not illegal, and the U.S. has voted in defense of that. I mean, it's as bad as it's ever been. But I think that also means something's going to break and they're going to oust um, Abbas, as he should be. And I think the Palestinian people will, um, on the ground, sort of figure things. I guess I do remain hopeful because with every generation becomes new solutions to deal with an older problem. So I think we do get smarter. I think we do get more abil and we do, we figure it out. Maybe not the way you and I sitting here right now think, you know, it's like a divorce, right? I mean, everything falls apart when you get divorced. Your whole life is ruined and you lose the house and you lose the kids and you lose the car and you can't get out of bed. 
and you know, and yet life goes on, and you have a different. You know, th- your road has forked, and you go somewhere else. And I think that is what history is. is there always will be a future. Yeah, you actually you, know? you touched on something just a second ago, which I I wanted to ask you as well. This is something that um, the, the last couple times I've talked to some former students here from Egypt, they they always brought this up and they were kind of frustrated about this. Uh, why do you think it is that in places, and it's not just Egypt, you see it here too, um, there's a lot of, um, <clears throat> there's there's a lot of kind of excitement and support for the Palestinian cause. And it's presented often as, as sort of part of supporting the, the, the worldwide, the, the Ummah, right? The worldwide Muslim community. But yet, you know, China has a million Muslims in legit concentration yeah. camps right now. Yeah. And there's no there's no protests at the Chinese embassy in Cairo. There's none. There's no protests in front here, like in front of the, the Chinese embassy. None in Toronto. None I've checked. None mm-hmm. in Vancouver. No. But so the there's just uh, well, the Palestine you know, where I where I teach, is, they've they've tried to like um, they've stopped departmental meetings mm-hmm. to protest, to try and pr- protest Israel and to like yeah. petitions are sent around my department all the time to protest this or that yeah. about Israel articles. Nobody, absolute crickets yeah. about. But that makes like, sense to me because we're talking about uh, geography and known things. I mean, it, first of all, I mean, the news about what China is doing to the uh, Uyghurs, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. It's very the Uyghurs, new. Yeah. Sorry, what ha- The Uyghurs. The Uyghurs. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Uyghurs. So we don't know very much um, about it, right? It's very, it's just in the last few years. And the Palestinian issue is really tied in with the pan-Arab movement from the 30s, and it's a known issue. People grew up with it. There's people still alive who were pan-Arabists, you know, who were there before 48, who followed Nasser, who, who you know, so Palestine is part of their uh, home, their, their back backyard, right? It's, it's known. It's uh, next door, their own... Uh, Government has had a lot to do with it, with the Camp David Accords and, you know, the Gaza border. And for good or ill, Egypt has been, for good and ill, Egypt has been part of this problem. So it's just a very known thing. And yes, I think Arab Muslims see it as, uh, yeah, part of the Oman, the Muslim. But it's, it's, it's even more than that. I mean, because Palestine, there's, all, there's always been a large uh, Christian uh, group there, so it, it's just it's a geographical proximity, historical known thing, and I think what's happening in China is not known, and I think the Muslims of China have always been, you know, there's the Muslims of um, Indonesia who are known more, have been more part of the larger group, have gone to Hajj. I think there's been a lot of uh, interaction. A lot of uh, Indonesian Muslims will work in Saudi uh, Arabia. But I think what's happening in China, it's just not known. But that said, I don't know how much Arabs of the Arab world would stand up for um, something that is far from their known thing. When I was working for Medical Aid for Palestine and for the PRCS, I was always really impressed 
by the people who would come out to our things, our events, um, who weren't Palestinian. And it, and there were so many people from uh, uh, India and uh, Pakistan. They took um, an interest politically. and and But I don't often see Arabs take an interest in other things. Yeah, I well, I don't. I was <laughs> when I was in uh, no, but when I was in Malaysia and Indonesia, of course, in, Indonesia is the, you know, the largest Muslim country in the world, mm-hmm. um, and the I again and again I would meet you know Malaysian Muslims and Indonesian Muslims, and they would talk to me again and again about Israel, 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 mm-hmm. you know, Israel. Sucks. Well, I mean, it's because I was like, it's there's it just it's such a tiny country, mm-hmm. and. Um, and it's it's just it it always fascinates me. This what's a tiny country? The Israel, yeah. I mean, Israel. It's a small little country. But this is a, but it's, it's a story a of imperial because it's a story of colonialism. It's a, um, a imperialistic Death Star story. You know, it's it. This is not a religious conflict. It's not even a. I mean, it's a conflict. It's it, Israel was the last great um, imperialist com, uh, conquest. So it's 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 a story of uh, usurpation and and theft, and it it doesn't. And Israel might be a tiny country, but it has a massive uh, country uh, behind it, right? And it gets more money. Its military and its government gets more money from the U.S. than any other country. Um, isn't the but Egypt is number two? Isn't number two? And why to keep the peace? So Egypt has its hands tied. It has to keep the border closed with Gaza. It can't say boo. They they figured out their revolution thanks to the U.S. They put the army in. It was like the quote-unquote best thing they could do. The army's going to keep quiet. The Egyptian army does not want to fight. And they're going to take the money and they're going to keep quiet. Jordan yeah. is in a similar position. And, and Israel... It, but MBS, you know, even like you know, in Saudi Arabia, he's like hanging out with like she, you know, the NV, who's NBS? MBS, MBS. Uh, the I can't remember his like his full name. He's what country? The is prince this? of Saudi Arabia. The Saudi, oh, so, the Saudi uh, prince. Yeah, uh, Muhammad. He's like hanging Salman, out with yeah. like the head of China. Oh, he's a terrible and saying, person. And he's saying, yeah, it's totally cool what you're doing to Muslims and. Uh, it has nothing to do with religion. And he said really. he's, he's basically said it's totally fine. Yeah. But then, you know, Saudi Arabia and the U.S. has have been terrible forces in the Middle East. Between the two of them, they have made sure that tyrants have stayed in place, that um, economies are tied, like really strangled and tied, and that uh, people just are just kept down. I mean, it, the, between the two of them. So mm-hmm. yeah. Well, I mean, closer to home, you've been you've been working on this this project, right? The Friends of Hutchison. Right. Maybe you could sort of because this is it's such a wonderful case study for all of this stuff. Yeah. So maybe you could tell our listeners what this okay. what this is. In 2011, I moved to um, Hutchison Street, which is right in the heart of the um, uh, Hasidic uh, community here. And so, like most people who move there, I, I mean, I just moved from a few streets away and south, but I hadn't really seen um, Hasidim much. And so they were just an, we, we were an odd community, but I started to realize they were good neighbors. So that was kind of my take on it. And then that summer, there was a, a small synagogue on my street, very, very close, that wanted to renovate. 
And I started to hear about the conflict or the opposition against the Hasidic community because a municipal counselor would go door to door with her petitions and her things to try to... She was always trying to pass bylaws uh, against the Hasidic community. She was an independent municipal counselor, Céline Forger. I want to name her because what she did was really terrible. And... Um, her, along with this man who kept a blog, they were they ran this small cabal of people in opposition who were creating a lot of strife. And I remember once they had signs and went up and down Park Avenue protesting the Hasidic community. And so I saw them go door to door one day and not ring the Jewish doorbells, which you can tell because they all have the mezuzahs. And it just looked awful to me, like that you would so target a community that you would go with your little flyer and try and get everybody on side against the people whose doorbells you weren't ringing. It just felt really out. It felt very fascistic, Kristallnacht kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so that night I wrote up this flyer, <laughs> got it translated and said, if they can do this, I can do this. I didn't even know any of the um, uh, Hasidim and but I knew there was they had put a referendum for a week from then, then to block the renovation of this really decrepit synagogue, and all they wanted to do was put in a washroom and a foyer. So I went door to door for a week. I took the week off work and rang all the Jewish doorbells and rang all the other doorbells and talked to everybody and gave out my flyer. And I would go home at night and cry. <laughs> I was so exhausted and spent. Then we had the referendum. We lost the referendum. But as a Hasidic woman said to me, Laila, we lost the referendum, but we gained a community. <laughs> so mm -hmm. that's it. So our role has been to bridge the Hasidic community with the non-Hasidic community. We had a bake-off. We had a baking contest one year. We had two um, assemblées where hundreds of people came to meet people and we had table rondes and people would talk and we've done quite a quite a few things um menorah lightings we did a a bridge on uh Uchiman park um a, a nighttime thing with candles to protest something so um and then mindy pollock who's a young uh woman um decided that she sort of liked the political side of things and so i campaign managed her and she ran for uh projet and in 2013, she became a counselor, the very first um, Hasidic woman to ever hold office in the world. And she in the was, world? In the world. Whoa, we've, I didn't we've know checked. That. Oh, we put a little asterisk because we think maybe we didn't check everywhere where our, our checking has not That's been amazing. perfect. But we've never found a Hasidic woman to hold office up to 2013. Yeah. So she's a municipal councillor. She won the second election in 2015. Oh, she's so well-loved. She's amazing. Yeah, people just... She's a firecracker. So yeah. she was 23 or 24 when she was elected. She's going up to 30 now. And she's one of my closest friends, her and her parents. That's so, amazing. Yeah. So I'm really proud of that. And people, you know, it was funny because I'd never, I mean, it was very... Um, I'd always, uh, whatever political work I'd done was has been for Palestinians. Like I've done a lot of political work, but I felt it was tied together, and I felt everything I had learned in the Middle East about how to be a good human fed into sort of taking care of my neighbors. 
And I think I think at the end of the day, that's what you have to do. You have to take care of your neighbors. You have to take care of each other. You have to serve each other, and you have to protect. And it and at the end of the day, it doesn't matter who they are. Um, I'm not uh, uh, religious, and and I have no interest in any of that. And um, but it's not about that. It's just making sure that you know we can have a diverse country. Because I'm very proud to be a Canadian that can live in an urban city and have a subgroup in there. It's kind of amazing. It's very rare. You have the Dukbars or the Mennonites living rurally, but here you have within our neighborhood a very insular community. I, I find it amazing that we can we can do that as humans. I maybe, think it's a maybe sign the future of, is city-states. Oh, maybe it has to go, be city-states. Maybe states. we're going to go back to... Oh, I see what you mean, as city-states. Maybe... States. maybe um, because the nation state's a very recent thing in human yeah. history. Yeah. And maybe it's uh, maybe it's not going to maybe it's not sort of sustainable, maybe yeah. sort of ethnically. I mean that was the sort of Wilsonian dream after World War 1 that oh everybody's every ethnicity is going to have their own nation state. Okay. And this is going to solve all the problems of conflict, but of course mm-hmm. it's like musical chairs. Mm-hmm. You create these states and some people like things like the Kurds, for instance, end up stateless. They don't. Mm-hmm. They don't get one. And then you create these like little, sort of ethnically defined or racially defined kind of states. And then there's minorities within there. Yeah. They get kind of landlocked within there, and they're stuck. And, you know, and then there's they... conflict like Eritrea or uh, all of them, Yugoslavia, right? and yeah. But maybe the maybe the future is to have South Sudan smaller political units mm-hmm. where, like you know, you can know your neighbors. And maybe in those smaller units, because there's possibility of like face to face, you can transcend uh, differences and find common ground more easily than in a you know, in a big country like like Canada or even even something. Like Quebec's massive, right? You, the idea of Quebec or Canada becomes very much like theoretical. It's an idea. Yeah, but you can still cling to that <clears throat> and keep it going, like. You know, there's a lot to be said about uh, Trudeau, and there's a lot of uh, criticism to be made of him. But the cabinet he put together in 2015, or 16, 15, um, it, it was, you know, the fact that we had a minister of defense who wore a turban, or the minister of democracy who was um, an Afghani uh, refugee, or the minister of... Um, what's Hassan's, what's his ministry? You know, like we had a really diverse ministry and there was no question that these people are Canadian, that they represented Canada, that they could speak to Canada and for Canada. And um, I still think I still think it's possible. I like the idea of city-states as a Montrealer living in Quebec. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think there's something there. Yeah. Um, the rest of the province, can, we, we we are out of step with the rest of the province. So what, oh, I'm, what I'm, to do with yeah. that? I'm I'm a, for a long time I've been a big supporter of the idea of city states because I just think if you look at when a country like Canada was formed in the late 19th century, most people it was a, an incredibly rural country. Well, most people were rural everywhere. Most people lived on farms or you know small towns and stuff like that. But increasingly we have uh, urban populations, and now cities have so many more expenses and so many more. This is where like most of the citizens are, but the system is set up in such a way that uh, most of the power 
is in places. And the money. Yeah, Yeah. is in places that are totally unaccountable to most of where the people are. And you have this, this is all over, all over the world. This is a a problem in nation Mm. states where you have the, the countryside sort of is dictating to the cities Mm -hmm. how their values onto, so you have people like in Eroville who are deciding, Mm -hmm. you know, that we need Bill 21. Yeah, yeah. The, when they don't actually have to deal with any yeah. of the difference. They don't They've know what they're talking about. They've never met a Muslim, but they had to pass a law that you you can't... You, stoning is not allowed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I thought that was assault. Yeah. Um, we already yeah. have that law. But anyway, yeah, the, uh, <laughs> yeah I mean, they, they have... It, very often you have this situation where... And you, you find this, fr- this very similar frustration in, in New York... I saw it in Philadelphia, in mm. Baltimore, uh, in LA, in you, you in big cities. There's this frustration that you are your budget priorities and your various are being dictated to you by these people who live in places that have very mm-hmm. different concerns and different values. For a few years, I had a farm on the Quebec uh, border uh, towards um, Ontario, <clears throat> and I met a lot of disgruntled people, people who would never go to the city, people who hate the city, just sort of grumpy. And and it started to make me think of the city as a kind of dog park. If you take your dog to a dog park, you have a very socialized dog. You have a well, dog parks are good for dogs because they socialize a dog. A dog will learn how to be around other dogs, not to be too aggressive, not to be too servile. Like they'll just figure out their place and they'll do it fast. And if you bring a dog to a dog park who has never done that, I mean, he, he'll just freak out. He'll jump on the other dogs and get bit and stuff like that. Yeah. And sometimes the city to me is like a really good dog park. We learn, we we know how to be together. We're very well socialized. We know how to to just deal with the person who happens to be standing next to you, and no matter what they're like. And I think in the country, yeah, a lot of people are not well socialized. It 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 bothers them. Things bother them. They don't want to be around other people. And yeah, and to be in hawk to their political voting electoral power which is out of out of proportion is not right yeah we need more city dog parks <laughs> <laughs> that's a really good way of putting it actually but how did you you know to sort of just pivot back for a second how did you adjust to the dog park of of Egypt because one thing that is obviously you can't cover everything in a novel but like one thing that i was surprised to not see Hardly at all. I mean, you allude to it, yeah. Like on the buses, there's these creepy guys, like kind of grabby, and there's mm. some sketchy guys, and there's that weird scene with like uh, Yasser Arafat's younger brother putting mm-hmm. his hand on Nadia's like thigh and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And there's there are some, but there's on the whole, there's not very much kind of male uh, kind of violence in this story in Egypt, which. I was really surprised because mm. that's something that yeah, my friends, yeah. my 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 female friends who've, and these are not uh, shy, retiring, like wimpy. We're talking people who've traveled all over the world, um, very often by themselves, like people who've taken the Trans-Siberian um, you know, Railway, who've traveled around like um, Thailand, and they've, they're very, very well-traveled people. Mm-hmm. Again and again and again, I've heard from women saying the 
uh, you know, one of the worst places I've ever been in my life was Egypt. Mm -hmm. They said it was, I've never seen just some, just straight up disgusting, like people grabbing you, people being really aggressive. Mm -hmm. One of my friends actually, she, she's a very strong German woman. She's very like, she's a force. Uh, and she's she's super super assertive, and if somebody gets up and she'll like you know give it right back. And she said, you know, pretty much everywhere in the world, um, when she's given it right back and been very very assertive and stuff like that, people back off. She goes, not in Egypt. Are you kidding? She oh. said she got. She I would got say a the opposite. Punched her no right in the face. Okay, like full on in the face. Mm. Lots of people around. Nobody did a thing. That is so contrary to and, every single experience yeah. I had. So I don't know what where that is coming from. It was in from. Cairo. Yeah. yeah. But uh, but it was... I mean, the harassment there is off the radar, for sure. It, I guess to me, it became part of the background noise, one. The longer I lived there, either the less it bothered me or it just was happening less. I've looked... I was just not taken as much for a foreigner. I think foreign women, like foreign women. But it's a certain type of man and it's on the street and it's cl- it's a class thing, it's a wealth thing. There's a lot of ang- there's a lot of class anger. I mean, you show up and you look wealthy and that's hard to take. But what also goes with that, I mean, I don't know this woman's experience being punched, but I was n- I there I never saw actual violence. And every time I pushed back, and I did, I threw a brick through that story of the brick through the car. That, through the, the BMW? It that's a real, ha- that's oh a real God, story. Wow. <laughs> and other things, hit people on the head, scream. Everybody would come running. The man would back off. There was no question that these gestures or these words carried any hint of violence, which is n- which to me just sort of, I, I guess I was able to live with it quite well. Like it just became something and um, street life is very different. Like walking on a sidewalk. I don't know. It, I mean, for sure I had hard penises poke at me in, in crowded buses. You know, it's it's not like I didn't have experiences. Um, but the corollary to that is that there is an honor amongst people and there's an honor amongst men and women and there's a way that they're also very protective. Like I had men come up to me and women, like it wasn't really gender, but would say, come, come with me. And they would take me away from a situation where they saw a man kind of gearing up to say or do something. So people would say, come over here, you know, or come and sit, sit. So many Egyptian women come and sit over here on the bus. You know, because this, you don't want to be standing next to these guys. So there's also this kind of interaction. Like here something happens, nobody's going to stand up for you. Rarely. So rare. People won't speak out. This, people are, you know, they're in their own little bubble. But in Egypt, you're kind of everybody's concern. And sometimes it's a negative concern. Mm-hmm. And sometimes mostly it's a positive concern. So... I liked the fact that it was a concern. And so I guess I found my balance in that. And overall, I found Egyptians, and I've been to a lot of places in the Middle East and spent a lot of time. I found Egyptians overwhelmingly the kindest, the most solicitous, the most, um, the easiest to deal with. Um, In Tunisia, there's a kind of, 
you know, they're very French too. And it's sort of like, you know, and everybody, yeah, in Jordan or Syria, there were more. Syria is a very interesting country, but I was there a long time ago. But um, yeah, Egyptians are just so wonderful. There's it, The way you can say in Canada that uh, New, Newfoundlanders are a little different and a little more wonderful than the average Canadian. Yeah. Egyptians are really special. And and I went back there this summer. Took I took my daughter, and um, I was warning. I went with my sister and my daughter, and I was saying, okay, Egypt, because we went to Lebanon and Jordan and Palestine, and then we finished our trip in Egypt. And I was saying, okay, this is really going to be off the radar. We're going to have to deal with a lot of issues here. Don't worry about it. Not, one, nothing happened. My daughter went out on her own a couple of times. Nothing, no harassment. People were just kind and. I don't know if the I don't know what's happened to the country. There seemed to be less harassment on the street. I certainly I never That's saw. That's fantastic. It. Yeah, yeah, and people were just wonderful. Well, I I know you know as a fellow Montrealer, um, I I I love Montreal so much. I'm a very patriotic Montrealer, <laughs> but you know I'm the first one to admit, not the most friendly. No, city in the world. It's in not. fact, it's one of the maybe least friendly. It's hmm. and. Anywhere else that I've gone and spent a certain amount, I've I've always found like that that place has been more friendly than here, which it's is very kind of cliquish sad. here. We we're very cliquish, and I sort of, you know, the Quebecois like to think of themselves as very friendly, but they're cliquishly friendly. So if they see you as part of a clique, I think on a public level, I think in the plateau or myland, you live in Verdun, there might be some of that. There's a street life and a sidewalk life that can be very convivial. But generally, people will not talk to each other. I talk to each other a lot. I smile at strangers all the time. I feel like I'm on a mission to kind of insert <laughs> insert a kind of public acknowledgement ritual. Yeah. So I, I find that it's actually it's not necessarily like a like a French thing. I find the uh, it's it's like a Montreal thing because I find that the anglophone community is. Just as much like that as the, okay. the French. Really? Okay. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I find it's just, it's a Montreal thing. And, and people who come, who move here, um, have, I've heard this so many times. They say, like, you know, I, I, I moved here because I'm, let's say they got a job at Beaumaldier or a job at McGill or Concordia or whatever. And they, for the first three years, they just find it so lonely and mm. they find it so hard to, like, kind of break in. And then they, they have, like, one friend. Who's from here? Who's who introduces them to everybody, and then suddenly then they okay. have this rich social life, and they're like, "This is amazing." But they say, like, up until then, because there is this this cliqueishness, which is exactly right, uh, where you kind of need an entree yeah. into maybe the, it's in English too. Yeah, you need to have. Whereas you know, I lived in Baltimore for for a number of years, and like. That is one of the most friendly places I've ever Americans been. Americans have life. this wonderful way of talking to each other wherever they are, right? Yeah. But I love that. Especially if you get into this, the like Baltimore is kind of on the the border between North and South. Hmm. But if you get into uh, into the South, there's like I I remember to give you an example when I was like twelve years old, I went to go and live for a summer with my my uncle Peter down in, in Virginia. And uh, he lived in this little town outside of Roanoke called uh, Rocky Mount. And uh, I, I remember I would go out, I would help him out on his house in the morning. And then after that, I was free to go exploring and I would go out in the forest and look for turtles and snakes and explore and stuff like that. <laughs> well, 
you know, one time I'm out like, you know, maybe like a mile or two away from his house. It starts pouring rain like crazy, like so much that I just was like, all right, retreat. So I started heading back to his place. It was one car after another stopped. People kept like stopping asking if I wanted to lift home. Uh, and I grew up here, so I'm like, what are you, like some pedophile? <laughs> like, you know, like uh-huh. I, I, I was like, no. But then another person stopped and another person mm. stopped. People that were going in the different, the opposite direction from me turned yeah. their car around and said, nice. do you want to? Right. People came out of their houses mm. and asked me if I wanted a drink or if I wanted to come inside. And mm. It was, I was just overwhelmed wow. by how kind people, and yeah. that happened all the time mm. like i'd be walking that's around that's nice that's people the way were to have a so community. so and yeah. in baltimore when i was living there baltimore i as a montrealer i had to really adjust because when you're walking down the street people that you don't know say hi to you and they ask you how you're doing mm. and it's not a formality even in baltimore in baltimore they will actually they'll ask you how you're doing and then um they'll stick around and like have a conversation with you mm. and you can say like and they're like, great, kind of having Sounds a very bad Middle day. Eastern. And they like, and they'll have this whole conversation with you. And this is a total stranger. Like, and if you go to a cafe or a bar, people will just start talking to you, and they're not, tr- they're not necessarily trying to hit on you or sell you something. They're just mm-hmm. really, really friendly. Yeah, we it's, need uh, more of that. It's yeah. I mean, we. It is. I mean, it is friendly here. Like, if you, if you are kind of plugged into. The community, but it's not uh, its not as much uh, friendly to strangers. No, I think people are inhibited here. Like you feel it on a bus or something. Like people don't want to be the one to talk or, you know, get out of their thing. And then everybody looks at them. They don't want to be the first one. You've, yeah, we're what very do you inhibited. Think, what do you think is going on there? I've heard all these like theories about what it is. Some people say it's the, the language thing that if you... If you live in a place where you can basically expect that everybody speaks, um, you know, French or Arabic or Spanish or English, that if you live in a place where there's an expectation of there being one language that everybody speaks or should speak, that that makes it more likely that you'll sort of talk yeah. to a stranger. Whereas if you live in a place where, but do people you talk in know, Toronto? Um, I don't find people that friendly in Toronto. No. Or Ottawa. No. <laughs> so maybe it's Canadians. I think, we you have just to go to, I think you have to go to Newfoundland. Newfoundland, yeah, I've heard that. Or Halifax. It, Halifax is good too. They're very, yeah, yeah. But, they're all, but they're all drunk all the time. <laughs> it gets it gets to be everybody like everybody I know has moved to Halifax. They they say, they go through this like this thing where they absolutely love it for the first year um, and then they hit a wall. Mm. And they're like, I'm starting to find this really. It's like what you said about like you know hanging out with the old lesbians that are oh, right. kind of drinking yeah, and smoking. Yeah, yeah, it like, gets depressing at a certain mm, point where they're yeah. just like, there's drinking cultures are hard. Yeah, but there's drinking cultures and there's drinking cultures. Like yeah. I grew up here, growing up. I'm I don't know what your experience was, but growing up here in Montreal, I had some friends who you know when they were teenagers who drank too much mm-hmm. and and maybe like puked. But then they learned their lesson and they 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 sort of calibrated it mm-hmm. in the future and they didn't, you know, it happened like, you know, a couple of Six times. Six doors were enough. Like a couple of times <laughs> like in their teenage years or maybe 
Like, usually they had figured it out, but the worst thing that had ever, ever happened to them was um, that they had, they had drank too much and they puked. I remember when one of my, my first serious girlfriend, she ended up going to school in the Maritimes and then uh, she went to Mount Allison and then she ended up like moving to Halifax. And she said she was just completely amazed that there it's completely normal for people not to puke. That's, that's nothing. People drink to such an extent that they lose control of their bowels. Oh, come on. Yeah, I'm not joking. Like almost in the same way that here you would have a percentage of friends who had drank so much yeah. that they puked. That they, yeah. There, that same percentage of people have gotten wow. so drunk that they that they wake up, yeah. they've pissed themselves, yeah. they've shit themselves. Yeah. Wow. And uh, and a lot of them also have have drank so much that they had to be hospitalized for alcohol yeah. poisoning. Huh. And then so you remember that movie Train Spotting? Yeah. Do you remember when he wakes up in the morning? And he shit himself. No, you don't remember <laughs> this. Not so long it's ago. It's like one of the. It's like I just one of the most... something about the toilet. No, there's <laughs> that when he dives in. Is that it? No, this is when uh, it's the it's the little guy, the kind of little guy with the he uh, he basically he overdoes it. He's at his girlfriend's house and he craps himself. Hmm. And the parents are trying to like comfort. They're like, "Oh, it happens to everybody. It's no oh, big wow. deal." And he's like, "No, no, no. I'll take them. I'll take them." And the they're trying to grab the sheets from him mm. and then they're doing a tug of war and then whoosh, the stuff flies all uh, over. Yeah. It's it's one of the most gross scenes. Ugh, yes. I, you've like blocked it out. You've <laughs> had have. PTSD. You've like forgotten <laughs> the scene. But when that movie came out, uh, you know, my fr- friends in the Maritime were like, oh yeah, that's a completely hmm. normal thing. See, uh, I've never even heard that it could happen. In Nova Scotia, yeah. New, New Brunswick. Hmm. It's a completely like a normal, a normal thing, right? And then when I moved down to the states, I had friends from from Philadelphia who were like Irish, like Irish from like Boston and Philly and Baltimore, and they said, "Oh yeah, that's completely normal." Wow. So well, the states is a real binge drinking culture. Seem, well, it seems to be connected, like specifically to. Like I like a lot of the UK Irish, sort of. Irish. Mm-hmm. Well, UK in general, but specifically Scottish like too. like a lot of like Irish, um, predominantly Irish communities mm. that had okay. this. But but yeah, the, the drinking culture is yeah. just yeah. wild. Which <laughs> that just did not, not my didn't thing. E- it didn't exist here. Like I, I no, we have a really different relationship to alcohol, mind you. In high school, I did my share of drinking and puking, but. <laughs> But um, yeah, I mean, in like in Quebec culture, there's you drink with your meal and you start that. Like there's an appreciation of the alcohol as a product. It's different. Yeah, and there's a, there's also like like a, a calibration where it's not um, like it's it's not sort of that I want to get to oblivion. Mm-hmm. You know, like these people. You, you there's some people where. I've I've you know been hanging out with them and drinking and there's this look where where they just they're trying to you know let's do some shots you know yeah. and they just want yeah. to kind of go for oblivion yeah. right which is um, it's, I don't, it's I don't a, know what that is it's not something I've ever been attracted to or no or hung out I I don't hang out with people who do that I hate shots I hate the idea of shots I hate that this is 
something that you do. I just find it so bar- I find shots barbaric and yeah. stupid. <laughs> I I don't uh, as a general rule I don't you know? I don't like them either and but I don't like them because it's the the big problem with sh- well first of all I like I like whiskey and I like the taste of it and mm. I like I like tequila I like the taste of it mm. so I like to sip it mm-hmm. and taste it I don't want to just like, shots is boom. for getting drunk and it's, it's shots uh, is performative it's it's just showing off it's like the whole ritual of it it's it's the getting drunk and you do it in a group who, who like nobody does shots alone <laughs> or that, that would be kind of sad but and, and you know, also you don't the whole you can't monitor how how like your you lose your track level you're gonna lose track right you right? can't because it's just hitting you like this and you're just yeah no if shots is really I no do not like I won't even do one I won't out of principle yeah have you have <laughs> boycott you che- shots yeah. have you checked out uh, Malcolm Gladwell's new book Talking to Strangers no it's so 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 good but he has hmm. he has a whole chapter in there on alcohol okay. and it's absolutely fascinating he talks about binge drinking culture mm. and you know why it is that people black out when they're doing shots and stuff like okay. that it's, it's absolutely f- it's fascinating <laughs> but he but he he says you know that a lot of the um, this sort of like kind of rape rape culture on campuses and things like that. It's so completely connected for sure to to for drinking. Sure. And he said, you know, it's it's become this taboo subject that if you if you mention that the drinking, you mean this connection? It's, be, it's become a totally. Is if it? you mention this, and he gives a number of examples. If you mention this, people say, no, you should not be telling um, people to take responsibility of their drinking you should be focusing on you know tell boys not to rape rather than telling mm. and he says well those two things are true but he said if you actually like look at what the the science of how alcohol affects the brain once you reach a certain level of inebriation the part of your brain the hippocampus that's responsible for forming memories just blinks off Right, that's how people black out. And once somebody's blackout drunk, um, they're on a kind of sort of autopilot, right? So it's like a like talking to somebody who's sleepwalking or something mm. like that. So it doesn't matter how much sensitivity training or like uh, he said, like this whole focus that's happened in universities right now on teaching consent. And all this oh, and stuff. he's saying without the lowering of the drinking aspect, it's it's not. He's saying be it's effective. completely. Yeah. yeah, he's saying it's completely. Um, besides, like we're giving young people all this like really really intense sort of training and like consent. And he goes, that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's mm-hmm. like probably mm-hmm. that 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 is a good thing for its own reasons. Um, it's a positive good. But if you think that is going to solve the problem of like. Uh, you know, right. date rape and things like that. Yeah. Such, you're completely wrong hmm. because once somebody, once two people are in that zone, whatever they learned there, it's not yeah. operative anymore. Okay. He, he gives a, an analogy uh, when he was talking, not in the book, but when he was on, um, he was on the Joe Rogan podcast uh, a week or two ago and hmm. talking about the book and they got onto this topic and he said like, you know, imagine if you gave somebody all sorts of training that was that pertained to um, that required daylight, and then when they get to the situation, it's night, huh. right? Like mm-hmm. there's different mm-hmm. vision, there's different ways to orient yourself, and so he said a lot of this, like this training on on consent, it's it's not going to solve the problem. Mm-hmm. Like people actually have to stop 
doing the shots. Well, we're not teaching people how to drink either, right? I mean, these kids, especially in the States, right? They First of all, they go to university at 16 or 17, which is so young. And then they have, you know, they can drink or they find ways to drink and they drink a lot and they have no idea how to ingest and moderate and even taste the alcohol. They have no idea what they're doing. I think at least here, you know, kids understand meals and drinking. I don't yeah. know. I don't well, know. it sort of goes back to your, your point uh, you said at the beginning of our discussion with, with Nadia going to Egypt and having all of this freedom and imagining that everybody else... Does, right, 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 and so Gladwell's point is that we we imagine that everybody has all this freedom when they're pissed, like totally mm-hmm. drunk, and so then we judge them mm-hmm. the way we would judge somebody mm-hmm. who's totally sober, and if they make bad decisions, if they mm-hmm. you know bad calls, then we we hold them accountable, and either yeah. actually once somebody's at that point, yeah. They don't. But they're still responsible. I mean, I think, and they're still um, accountable and they're still, they're still blamable. Oh, of course. You know, like. I mean, if you get drunk and you kill somebody, uh, even if you were blackout drunk, you're you're still still guilty of, at the very least, manslaughter. Yeah. Yeah. um, Because you did that, right? Mm -hmm. So you're, you're responsible for your actions. But if you have an epidemic of, let's say, murder in a particular area and you want to deal with that problem. Uh, lecturing people on how they should stop killing each other uh, if they're getting blackout drunk is not mm-hmm. going to solve the problem. Right. You know, like you right. have to say, uh, you have to, you know, yeah. get your, your drinking under control, right? So, yeah. but it, yeah, it's an absolutely fascinating. But he also talks about the um, the differences between like uh, Irish, like Irish immigrants to the United States and Italian immigrants to the United States, how they both came very often side by side in the same cities, they had the same consumption of alcohol per like per person per year, if you totaled it all up. They both drank like quite a bit, um, usually every day. And yet in the Irish communities, it caused a hmm. great deal of social dysfunction and a great deal of violence and a lot of problems. In the Italian communities, none. Right, interesting. And he says the difference is because the Italian communities, it was done in a family yeah. home setting with mm-hmm. food, mm-hmm. people sitting around family, yeah. laughing, telling stories. Yeah. Whereas in the Irish communities, the men would slink yeah, off to, go the, to bar the bar, by spend themselves. all the money, yeah, yeah. come and home drunk, getting yeah. into fights with each other, yeah. going to strip clubs, going to like yeah. getting into trouble. And that's well, it's kind of like guns, right? <laughs> I mean, Canadians have guns. We have guns in Canada. We have access to guns in Canada. If you want to, fi- if I wanted a firearm. I don't know anything about firearms, so I can't even name one. But I could go out and get one, I think, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can get a firearm. But we don't have the levels of homicide and gun violence proportionally that they do in the States. It's like there's, yeah, there's deeper things going on than just the thing, than just the alcohol or just the guns. Yeah. Yeah, Steven Pinker in his book... um Better Angels of Our Nature, Why Violence Has Declined. He has a whole, it's like a big, huge section in that book on the the, the whole issue of like violence in the United States. And he, he, he makes that point. He says, yes, it's true. Um, guns are responsible for a lot of um, 
for a lot of murders and violence in the United States. Absolutely. Um, but he said, even if you take away all the, uh, the guns, like if you're looking at the, the data for like, you know, violent crime and murder and stuff like that, he said, Americans still kill each other with knives, mm. hammers, yeah. um, with, with Their other cars. things. Yeah. They, they kill each other, uh, with, with non-gun things mm-hmm. more than uh, most other countries, right? Even yeah. there, so yeah, there is like there is something else going on there. I mean, mm-hmm. I think they've been. I mean, it's it, a country that has that is predicated on violence, as many are, as Canada is, but it's a country that's really also woven that into their mythos about themselves and about you know the 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 pioneer, the settler. I mean, it's all about minimizing the violence or glorifying the violence. And, and um, yeah, Americans are tough. They're tough motherfuckers, you know? They're like, <laughs> I find them really tough and really hard to read, too. There's a kind of joviality that is really performative and really put on. And... Um, Oh, but the, the kind of like rough the sales thing where it's like, the, hi, my name is Stacy. I'm going to be your waitress. That's like well, that, that, that thing. But or? it's even on a personal level. I've seen it a lot. There's like people, people know how to be friendly in the U.S., but sometimes like, but their eyes are dead. <laughs> you know? <laughs> 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 like there's, I've, I find the U.S. so fascinating. It's such a weird place. You know, it's like you go through a mirror when you go there. It's so much like here. Yet I find it crueler and harsher, and and people people are rough with each other, you know. People people are really rough with each other. They attack each other, and there's something to be said for being polite and kind of waiting your turn and sort of, you know. But there, it's like no, if you're not ahead of the game, if you're not on top, kicking the person below you on the ladder, then you're not a real man, or you're not a real New Yorker, or you're not a this. And there's a kind of need to kind of show up and 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 be as loud and as rough and as dominating as you can. And I think that's part of the American... And I think for, for, for a lot of the people who have committed a lot of the mass murders in the last few years, you look at them, they're, they're tiny little boys who must feel so on the outs with that macho masculinity... And, um, yeah. Well, a lot of them seem to want, it. it's a, it's a fantasy of like going out in blaze of glory, mm-hmm. you know, like the, the, sort of the matrix. A lot yeah. of them imagine like, I'm going to be Keanu Reeves going in. Coat flying. Yeah. And everything. I'm going to be like, it's, it's, it's amazing going back. I remember loving that movie when I first saw it and I thought it was so amazing. But then all these different things happened. I mean, there was the, all the, and then now, like, when I go back and watch it, I find it really disturbing. What do you find disturbing about it? I saw it um, again. I decided to watch it again. A I, few I watched it again. Ago. I found it, it was last year, <clears throat> and I found it, like, actually, like, a really disturbing movie because the message, you know, one of the ways of reading it is that he is enlightened. He sees things as they truly are. And so all of these people around him, they're somehow, they're, they're awake and they're not really, uh, they're, they're asleep. They're, they don't really know what's going on. And at any moment they can be taken over by these like mm-hmm. machines, right? And so they're basically all just expendable and, and somehow not real, 
And so shooting lots of them in a shootout, like, it's just, it's okay. I just... they don't... Uh, and it's very... I don't know. It, it didn't make sense to me anymore. Like, I, I found too many holes in the in the logic that this entire world was created, this this digital world, in order just so all these harvested bodies could just sort of dream together. Like, it, I just didn't buy the whole thing <laughs> anymore. <laughs> yeah, well, you, you watch it now and you're like, well, if really they just wanted energy from these bodies, mm-hmm. then... Why not just use like cows or pigs? Like <laughs> or why, that. why? Why humans? Right. And why would they need the harvested to harvested like, cows? Dream of of sheep, right? Yeah. Why would they? Yeah. It is. It is strange. But but the violence and the the sort of the attitude that uh, and this is a, a basic attitude that you find if any kind of kind of extremists, you know, where they have uh, of any kind is they come to this idea that anybody who's not in our group. They are all, they can be killed. Yeah. They are expendable. They can be. Yeah. Right. And that. That's what happens in movies. Yeah. yeah. It's, but it is specifically a kind of a view that, that the Matrix seems to unintentionally kind of support. Mm. Right. Mm. But it's, um, yeah. I mean, but you, the whole dog eat dog thing. I, mean, I remember there was one point in the novel, very hot, kind of steamy part of the novel towards, towards the end where there's a, Dogs and yes. one of them kind of grabs the other's neck, and he's like, and the implication is that this dog is killing the other dog, and then but you don't really say what happens. It kind of trails off, but that's the implication. Mm-hmm. What I mean, what were you going for? Because well, that was a very very powerful. There's a lot of dogs in Cairo, and they exist on the streets. Very rare for people to have pets. And they're feral but docile, like, you know, you can kick them and people do. <laughs> and they run off with their tails between their legs, but they're there. They're always these scrawny mutts. I guess in in that scene, Nadia is being seduced by Manal in this whole context of, of also the end of their relationship. And so this is happening and to me it was you capture breakup sex so perfectly oh my god <laughs> like it's like so intensely oh, yeah. it's like the hottest sex ever because but you I know don't, each other yeah but you have the excitement of the beginning because you know it's the I end. don't like writing about sex no but no. you capture you capture I think the emotion the, of it the, the sort of yeah sometimes physicalized I, I'm not comfortable I, I don't I don't even I, I don't yeah there's other things to write when you about when you write about sex. Yeah. And to me, those that was the dogs. It was the dogs, sort of abandoned, trying to find shelter in and around the cars, barking at each other, tearing each other apart. To me, it, it sort of was the subtext of Nadia and Manal's relationship that they were tearing each other apart in a way. Um, in you know as a as a metaphor for sex but also as a metaphor for 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 their for um for what was sad about the inevitability of their breakup it was it was um they were being torn apart and a kind of like a ruthlessness and, 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 yeah, born and a ruthless of necessity and, yeah and not in a pretty way, you know, like not in a romanticized way, just ugly street dogs abandoned, chewing each other out by the side of a car, not noticing. Do you know that poem by W.H. Uh, Auden or that painting, that uh, the Bruegel's painting? So mm-hmm. there's a Bruegel's painting of, um, 
Icarus, and it's Icarus falling from the sky. But so much else is going on in the painting, and Icarus is this little detail. So you see the plowman, you see a horse, you see a ship, and then somewhere, Icarus. And then W.H. Auden wrote this poem um, about sadness they were never wrong about try i forget about something they were never wrong the old masters that's the first two line or the line of the poem and how tragedy takes place anyhow in a corner while everything else is going on and your little trad like this huge thing icarus falling from the sky is going on and nobody's paying attention to it so that's sort of what i was trying to say <laughs> okay, all right. I I thought it was very very evocative. But uh, mm. are you going to? Do you think you're going to write sort of a a, a sequel like another? Sort I've of been asked Nadia? to write a sequel. Yeah, I really would like to know what happens to her next. Like what? Yeah. Well, I am writing uh, another book, and one of the reasons why I went to the Middle East was to do a bit more research on it, and um, it doesn't include her and Manal, but I think there could be ways of writing them in. Because it takes place now. So, um, and at the end of the book, Nadia ends up in uh, Jerusalem. Right? Yeah. She goes to join her father in Palestine, well, in Ramallah. And, uh, you know, I would do it without it being too sho- shoehorned and, and sort of contrived if it worked. But I'm not writing about them, no. But I have been asked to please continue their story. Because, I mean, there's just so much amazing material you could work with. Mm. Like, it, it's like the backdrop of everything that's happened in the last yeah. you know two decades there'd yeah. be a lot of really really good stuff to work with there yeah well I'm all oh, with them yeah 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 part it well who knows I'm a very slow writer <laughs> I'm, I'm not very prolific or productive because um, I'm not very disciplined and I'm always doing a million other things um, Rebecca Solnit says if you want to write don't have a social life and I <laughs> That doesn't. That hasn't really happened enough for me. Yeah, and but if you don't have a social life, I think you're. you're then you just get sad. And then I don't like writing when I'm sad. The characters yeah. are gonna start to yeah. maybe ring hollow. I don't that's know if right. that's. Yeah, it doesn't. Yeah, I think you need a balance. So I just need to figure out that balance. Sometimes I have it. Sometimes I don't. I think, like everybody. Yeah. So yeah. So what has I, been the reaction so far to the to the novel? It's been really good. Really, really good. I've had some nice reviews. It was shortlisted for a couple of things. Nice. Um, it's being translated into French as we speak by Sophie Voyot. She's a very well-regarded French translator in Quebec. It might be picked up by an Egyptian publisher. They're looking at it now. It would uh, be translated into Arabic. It would be translated wow. into Arabic. Wouldn't that be amazing? That would be wild. Yeah. That would be wild. Yeah. That's uh it's 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 iffy for them. So I wonder, but um he had heard about it and so he was very excited. So we'll see. We'll see. Nice. I'm crossing my fingers. And uh yeah, no, it's it's done pretty good. It's I'm I'm very happy with the reception. It took me long enough to f- come out with a book and, and <laughs> I can't complain. Well, it was an absolute delight. I as I said, I've read it twice and I mm. I enjoyed it more the second time Thank than you. the first time. It's a wonderful novel. Uh, we'll definitely, we'll link to it um, on the website and stuff like that. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And I apologize for my cough, my I cold. I haven't noticed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank but, you, John. Uh, Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you. Okay.